Hello, everyone, and welcome to the OSHA 3030 with Monish Rath. I'm Monish Rath, uh, and we've got a great topic for those of you who are just tuning in for the first time. The OSHA 3030 is a 30-minute webinar, I should say about 30 minutes, uh, in about every 30 days, and it covers impactful subjects in the area of OSHA law, safety and occupational safety and health law. And uh, so we try and find topics that are recent topical developments or impactful upon employers, and we put this out for general counsel uh, around the country and, and uh, friends uh, at corporations around the country, as well as safety and health professionals, human resources consultants, uh, folks from all over uh, tune into this program. We've been doing it for about three and a half years, since about August of, oh, I guess, 2013. So this may be somewhere around our 40th or 41st episode of the OSHA 3030. Uh, the topic we picked today is a great topic because OSHA just published its final rule or rules uh, on walking and working surfaces and fall protection in the general industry. And uh, it's a big, big subject. We're going to try and give you a uh, Mach 1 flyover in 30 minutes. Larry. Uh, Larry's laughing at that. Uh, for those of you who are on by web but have not yet had a chance to dial in, here is the number. And I'll use the arrows so that you can get in and get the sound as well. But in addition, we are available, for those of you who missed the program at this moment or whose colleagues have to miss it, uh, we put all of our OSHA 3030s on our website uh, at khlaw.com 3030. And so you can find this topic in a day or two and all of our other topics on the website. And we also reprogram it as a podcast so that you can get the sound portion is podcast. You don't have to be tied to your desk. You can take the program with you. Uh, joining me, I'm very fortunate today to be joined by Larry Halperin. Uh, Larry Halperin is one of the deans anywhere in the country on the subject of occupational safety and health law. And when it specifically, the reason I say I'm fortunate is because specifically when it comes to walking and working surfaces, uh, Larry Halperin can talk about this subject in his sleep. Larry, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Monish. I hope I don't put anybody to sleep. Or, or that you've fallen asleep yourself. Right. Uh, where, Larry, wake up. Wake up. Uh, so thank you very much for, for participating, Larry, and I'm, I'm grateful to have your, your company on this program. Uh, as I said before, I'm Monish Rath. More information about Larry, myself, or others in our uh, Occupational Safety and Health Program can be found on our website, uh, khlaw.com. Uh, I should point out, and as I said before, the entire library is on uh, khlaw.com slash OSHA3030. Lots of other great material, a few articles, et cetera, uh, so, so some good material to catch up on. I should point out that uh, many of you are well aware that uh, I'm putting out small uh, 134 characters or less pieces of OSHA news on my Twitter account, at Rathmonish, but many of you have not linked up there yet. So please take a minute right now, uh, pull out your, your smartphones or other devices, and uh, if you're on Twitter, uh, connect to at Rathmonish for uh, Twitter-based uh, feeds on OSHA law developments. Uh, the program's available as a podcast as well, and your favorite uh, podcast service, that's probably iTunes, Podcast Addict, or one of two or three others. Uh, I've got that subscribed, so I think by sometime this afternoon or tomorrow you'll see today's program. And both the practice groups, Keller and Heckman Workplace Safety and Health, as well as my own page, are on LinkedIn. 
so if you haven't linked up there, uh, that's a good thing to take care of as well. So Larry, let's talk about the subjects that we're going to talk about today uh, in terms of uh, the walking and working surfaces and fall protection rule. I think the first thing we're going to have to talk about is who's covered under this rule, maybe one of the broadest reaching OSHA rules out there, and then we'll talk about what hazards the rules. Uh, I, I keep saying rules, so you should know that it's actually a collection of rules, uh, and, and what are the hazards covered by the rule. Uh, then we're going to talk about what is required by the rule, uh, what employers should do, and uh, the compliance deadlines, and what elements of the rule permit of grandfathering. Uh, and I think, Larry, practically speaking, we all try and wrap up with practical thoughts that, that our members of our OSHA 3030 community can take away, and so we should try and do that here. What are the specific issues of concern that we have with this set of rules and what employers should do going forward? So with that said, Larry, as I said before, this is one of the broadest reaching uh, standards out there. Well, thanks, Manish. Uh, for the people who haven't followed some of the political aspects of things, let's keep in mind that this rule was put into effect on January 17th three days before the inauguration, so that it technically is not affected by the recent memo that came out of the White House suspending the effective or date of rules that hadn't yet gone into effect. That, that executive memo only applies to rules that have not yet gone into effect, right. and that would not include this one then. Correct. All right. So uh, the other thing is that this is, I think, the adoption of a rule that went through two or three false starts, and with each false start, I would say the participation, unfortunately, of the employer community went down. So some of you may be surprised about some things that are in here that uh, you didn't anticipate and may cause you to think about getting involved even after the fact and trying to make some changes either through interpretation or legal action. It's uh, too late to file a petition for review, but some have been filed and there certainly would be a possibility of intervening in, in some of those actions. although. Uh, they're not as broad in terms of their interest as some of your interests may be. As far as the issue of uh, the standard itself, let's just be clear, there is one provision that goes beyond walking working surfaces and covers workplaces, passageways, storerooms in general, and basically says keep them neat and orderly. Uh, and that would certainly apply to combustible dust. OSHA declined to mention the combustible dust anywhere in the text of the standard, but clearly intends to cover it. As far as what actually is a walking working surface, again, unfortunately, the agency fell down on the job in terms of providing good guidance. Um, it defines what the term is, and then it goes on to say in the preamble, it includes angled surfaces, and of course it includes ladder rungs, step bolts, ramps, and all kinds of things that are neither horizontal nor vertical. So I think the best thing you can get out of this is if it's something that an employee steps on and you're aware of the fact that they step on it, including a motor or a motor mount, uh, OSHA is probably going to consider that a walking working surface. So we'll go through this and talk about the fact that there are numerous provisions in here which simply clean things up, clarify things, attempt to adopt national consensus standards. And adopting some national consensus standards, unfortunately, OSHA did not necessarily put any deferred compliance deadlines in there or grandfather things. The attitude of OSHA was, well, it was in the consensus standard. Nobody gave us any comment to suggest they have any problem complying with the consensus standard, so we didn't put a grandfather clause in and we didn't put a delay compliance for you to retrofit anything. So that's not true of everything, but that's certainly true of some things. There's ambiguities throughout the standard, lots of room for misinterpretation, 
confusion, and we'll try to go through them and help you out and at least identify the areas where you need to think about making some changes. The first thing we should talk about is the rules attempt to regulate the surface itself. Uh, for walking, working surfaces, the, the rule describes some of the hazards that employers need to monitor for, assess for the risk of, and manage, uh, including surfaces that are wet or slippery, uh, sharp or protruding objects, uh, loose boards, leaks, spills, corrosion, uh, slippery surfaces other than wet surfaces like snow and ice, uh, but I think maybe one of the most interesting areas is combustible dust. When you and I had first talked about this some uh, years ago, I was surprised to see combustible dust was something that OSHA was shoehorning into the concept of walking working services because it really has its own unique set of hazards that aren't just mm -hmm. basically walking and working hazards. OSHA had prevailed on some litigation where it interpreted this standard to recover combustible dust hazards. Uh, at that time, the issue wasn't brought out that that standard had been adopted through a consensus process, and OSHA had dropped out the scope provision, which actually limited the scope of the consensus standard to industrial hygiene issues. So there's still a continuing issue about that, but you know you could win on that and lose on the general duty clause. So I, I wouldn't want to make too much of the fact that uh, there's an argument as to whether it's covered or not under properly under this rule. Uh, there was an old provision about loads. OSHA decided to take out the provision that says you have to place some sort of a, a sign on a building floor saying what the load is, but now you're still responsible for figuring out what the load is and ensuring that whatever you've got uh, won't exceed the load capacity of the building. So now basically they've avoided record-keeping compliance obligation under the uh, Paperwork Reduction Act and reduce the paperwork burden, but now you've got to go to building drawings and something else and pull out the information for the building anyway. So as usual, the agency's figured out a way to reduce the paperwork burden that O1B reviews will actually put more of a paperwork burden on employers. Okay, then the next thing is beyond walking surfaces, the, the major aspect of the rule covers access to walking and working surfaces and fall protection. And then there's a, an extended provision that deals with inspection, maintenance, and guarding, which was not there before. Before, the idea was you had to keep a workplace free from recognized hazards, uh, and if you didn't, you were subject to citation. Now the agency has enhanced the obligation by putting what might have been implicit before, actual regular inspection, maintenance, and provisions that say if you you have to inspect the walking working surface with an appropriate frequency. You have to determine that based on experience. You have to document that. You have to perform maintenance. And until the maintenance is performed, it gets rid of a hazard. Theoretically, you have to exclude the workers from the surface. That's what the rule says. Now, if you get 100,000 square foot four and a puddle in the corner, it seems pretty stupid to exclude everybody from the surface. That's what it says. I'm sure that's not what OSHA means, but you can see someplace in between that and and a particular surface, let's say one that's got either combustible dust on it or combustible dust in the rafters above it, and OSHA would say that it exposes a person on the walking surface to combustible dust and therefore keep people off the working surface until you clean out the overhead uh, girders, for example, and you could see what the issue could be there, uh, not only with respect to routine uh, collection of dust, but also a, an unanticipated irregular you know, emergency type event. So there's all kinds of new problems that are going to be created by this rule, 
And theoretically, if you've got to clean off a working surface that's got an overload of combustible dust, then you should know what the OSHA criteria are for excess accumulations of combustible dust. And there's a recent guidance document on that the Forest and Paper Association obtained. And potentially, OSHA could say, um, keep somebody off the surface until the dust is cleared away. And until the dust is cleared away, um, disconnect all the uh, ignition sources that might cause some sort of a problem. And you can see where that could lead to potentially shutting down parts of a factory, uh, intentional uh, citation allegations for putting people on a walking surface until the dust is cleared away. All kinds of new things are raised by this rule. I think practically speaking, Larry, <clears throat> given this problem, the, the first thing that an employer should do is create a access control written plan and then train up on it for the supervisors, certainly, and then implement it and start enforcing the access control uh, management sort of uh, approach to, to this particular requirement. Right. Go ahead. So then the next step, uh, as it says on, uh, on the slide, is that the standards call for regular inspection, uh, maintenance, and guarding. And I think that that's another critical element of uh, just the ongoing uh, living document uh, once you have a uh, control plan is to uh, charge somebody and train them up on inspection and maintenance for walking working surfaces for not just combustible dust but for all the hazards that you see here wet surfaces slippery surfaces etc so as usual if I could go back to the paperwork issue there's no requirement that you document the inspection procedure and document that you actually implemented and then about the check off on a certain day whatever it was but if you don't do that and you can expect the inspector is going to look with skepticism as to whether you've actually got the program in place, and you'll end up with more employee interviews to describe it. And if by chance some hazard is there that should have been discovered, then the assumption is going to be your inspection program is inadequate. Yeah, and I think that that's a simple process. So even if you just had a grid uh, table where you've checked off on a date all the things that you uh, put a check mark next to all the things that you've conducted the inspection on, uh, and then you refer any items you find to maintenance. Uh, to fix. I think that that's a straightforward process, but I agree, Larry. It's very difficult to demonstrate that you've complied with this without documenting it. Uh, We're talking about potentially every floor, every walking surface, and every walkway in an entire manufacturing facility, which could be millions of square feet. Well, that's right. And, you know, one of the concerns I have is when they refer to regular inspection, they're not uh, clear at all by, about the the interval that they think is appropriate, and you're, you're left to try to figure that out. You're left, and there's some places where routine dust is going to collect, and you're going to have to inspect that more frequently than other places. And to put a scheme together for all of that is going to be a significant burden. Not something that could have been done by uh, how many days ago? Seven days ago. Right. <laughs> so the rest of the standards go structurally into the kinds of walking and working services that OSHA has in mind. It goes into ladders, stairways, uh, step bolts. It even gets industry-specific into telecommunication towers. There's a subsection for billboards. Uh, there's a section for fixed ladders as opposed to movable ladders, dock boards. Uh, and so it keeps going through each section and for each section giving uh, what its uh, standard requirements are. Uh, with that said, let's go through just a few of them, uh, given the time that we have, the ones that we think are maybe the most universally prevalent in work places. Uh, the first thing it calls for uh, is that for all working, as, as we said before, all working and working, walking and working services, uh, the employer needs to conduct an inspection, conduct, uh, implement any repairs, and pull something out of service, coordinate it off, or block it from access by employees uh, until it's repaired. With ladders, specifically, there is a regular inspection 
uh, requirement that ladders need to be inspected at the beginning of every shift, right. uh, and that that in, ladders that failed inspection need to be pulled out of service. Uh, ladders have to have tags reflecting their inspection status uh, or their serviceability status. Uh, there's a, other requirements for the use of the ladder. One of them, and maybe one of the most compelling or important ones, is this idea that when using a ladder, an employee must grasp the ladder at all times with one hand. I italicized at all times, Larry, because when one climbs a ladder, one typically pulls his hand or her hand off of the ladder in order to replace the hand on another rung. And so one's not grasping with that hand the ladder at all times. It is, I'd say, intermittent. It's a rapid, intermittent succession of pulling your hand off and on the ladder again. This may seem like a triviality, and many people may laugh when I describe this, but Larry, you're your uh, your concern is probably the same as mine. What are your thoughts about that? Because it suggests that at all times there has to be one, at least one hand. Well, the problem here is that there are many activities, less in a manufacturing environment. OSHA has recently issued a general duty clause citation for just that point. Their view is that you should use this three points of contact rule, which means that either two hands and a foot or two feet and one hand are going to be in contact with a ladder at all times, and one of the hands that's going to be in contact is going to be grasping as opposed to sliding on the ladder. So in theory, for you to be grasping the ladder with one hand, you can't carry very much in that hand or you can't grasp the ladder as opposed to sliding it. Uh, and there's a big issue about how that's going to work, particularly out in the residential home market, where you have one person who's going to get up on a roof to install a dish or to clean a chimney or to do all kinds of other things. Roofing gutter, right. Where clean a gutter, right, where it's a one-person job, and there isn't going to be anybody else up there to haul stuff up. You certainly don't want to be throwing stuff up. And for somebody to climb up on a roof and then haul up something of substantial weight that's not going to catch on the eve of the first floor or the second floor, the person's going to have to come right over to the roof edge, which defeats the whole purpose of, of trying to avoid the risk of falling down off of a roof. So uh, just so we're clear on this, so we don't forget about this, the fall protection principle that OSHA has here is if you're at four feet or more in general industry, you need fall protection. Five feet's maritime, six feet's construction. The maritime people obviously have harder heads than anybody else, and we all appreciate that. But that's the rule that's in place. <laughs> And then they've basically provided the types of fall protection that can be used, the general principle being that there's no longer a hierarchy of controls that says you have to use guardrails if they're feasible. It says you use guardrails or use safety nets or use a, first, a personal fall protection system, which could be a fall rest system or a positioning system. But... Uh, those are the things that are generally required with some exceptions for designated areas. Then, with respect to ladders, um, with respect to portable ladders, OSHA says they're exempt from fall protection requirements. Fixed ladders have fall protection requirements. Step bolts, with respect to the inspection, instead of saying you inspect it at the initial use of each shift, it says at the start of each shift, which obviously you have to imply that means if it's going to be used, and if it's not going to be used, you're not going to inspect it, but that's not the way it's written. Um, with respect to stairways, 
they've got new provisions about the landing depth, which is prospective. They've also got some other provisions about stairway hatches and ladders and step-through distances, which are retroactive without any grandfathering clause or any delayed compliance for retrofitting. So that potentially is a problem for organizations that haven't read through the standard and realized they may be hit with what I would consider nitpicking compliance problems because OSHA simply figured, okay, that's what the consensus standard says. Everybody's doing it. Right now, there's a stairway specification that says if the rise is this much, the depth of the stair has to be this much. That's been replaced with basically nine and a half inches up and nine and a half inches back on a prospective basis, which is one improvement that makes things a little simpler. Okay. So those are the kinds of requirements you'd see for stairways and ladders. Mm -hmm. uh, dock boards are a unique subsection of the walking and working services part. Uh, and I, th I think uh, as a scaffolding, and I think the only one issues that we'd want to bring to your attention are the protective edge for dock boards uh, that prevents, say, a dolly or a cart, f along with the worker uh, managing it, from uh, rolling off the dock board uh, and the requirements to take the dock board and secure it so that when an employee is walking across the dock board, it doesn't slip off. Uh, these are the boards that are essentially a bridge between maybe, for example, a loading dock and a tractor-trailer trailer, trailer uh, and uh, that, that facilitate the flat or flatter transportation of goods from one side to the other of a dock or a truck trailer. Uh, and so, so sometimes you'll see a dock board slip off and the worker with it. Uh, these, these docks are typically around four feet off the ground, although there's certainly a range. Well, Manish, you bring up a good point there. With respect to this area, there are facilities where you have basically a dedicated type loading bay and the truck simply backs up, fits right in, and there's no way a worker could fall uh, basically off the platform because they're wrapped around by the protective side of the walls of the truck and, and the loading dock itself and the extended accordion-shaped material there. But under this rule, if you had a plain open dock the normal assumption that people have used in the past that you couldn't use fall protection on a loading dock is gone by the wayside. Instead, there's a presumption under this standard that you can use fall protection on a loading dock. So if you've got a truck that backs up that's 8 feet wide and the loading dock's 30 feet wide, apparently OSHA's assuming you're going to put guardrails on the rest of the loading dock so somebody doesn't actually fall off the loading dock while that truck is sitting there. Furthermore, if you have a dock board that actually has a fall potential because it's not fully enclosed, then OSHA says, okay, if you're only using motorized equipment to load and unload the truck, you don't need fall protection provided the employee has been provided with training on the placing of the dock board and, and the appropriate fall protection issues for that type of scenario. Um, a little bit of a problem because the training theoretically isn't required until May 17th, but the rule went into effect on January 17th. So you theoretically either move up the training four months to January 17th, which means retroactively already a week ago, or OSHA concedes that they really meant to give you until May 17th with the training in place, even though you wouldn't be in compliance with the standard because the exemption from the fall protection requirement is based on the training being in place. 
So this is a, you know, there's a series of these things, many of them, these issues we brought up to OSHA already, but of course they, they haven't had anywhere t near time to uh, provide an explanation for it. We're getting a lot of questions coming in, and this is fantastic. Um, one of the questions is, uh, a person has asked, oftentimes dock boards don't always cover the full width of the trailer and can fall through the opening. Is this area regulated? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that uh, dock boards often don't cover the full width of the trailer. And, you know, the uh, one client that I visited uh, a few years back had trucks of all different sizes, heights, widths, coming into a dock that was many, many, many feet wide. And the idea of guard railing all of that is, is impractical. I agree, Larry. The question about dock boards falling through is regulated, and uh, specifically under the requirement of securing and anchoring the dock board mm -hmm. so that it doesn't fall through. Right. Uh, that, that requires some kind of anchor point on the dock, which also uh, creates a uh, logistical difficulty for employers. I don't know how to implement uh, creating those anchor points and still having the full fleet variety that comes in and out of a typical loading dock, but that is the method that OSHA is seeking. Uh, another question that's come in is, can you please address fall protection for accessing the top of a tanker rail car? Another question was simple, si similar, what about rolling stock like a rail car where you need to access the top of the car and all the rail cars are different sizes and shapes? Okay, so. What happened is OSHA asked for input on the idea of whether rolling stock and what it terms motor vehicles should be covered by the rule. It went through a long discussion, brought in all the points, suggested that there were many cases in which fall protection was feasible, but then punted and said, uh, for the time being, we're going to retain our existing rule which says that with respect to rolling stock and motor vehicles, we'll follow the rule that fall protection is going to be required if the rolling stock or motor vehicle is next to a structure like a building and a loading dock where it's feasible to use fall protection, the idea being if it's, if it's away from a structure someplace out on a rail line or out on a road, that it wouldn't be required. And then they did define in the preamble of the final rule that the term walking working surface includes a trailer. So there's a DOT preemption issue that comes into play, and then there's the issue about whether the particular item, rolling stock or motor vehicle, is near a facility where, where fall protection equipment could be used. And depending on how you get that answer, you get the answer to the question. And there's uh, the issue of whether or not the trailer is detached, stationary, and not a part of rolling stock at that moment. Right. So then you've got the typical situation where the trailer comes across interstate, it's delivered, it's dropped, and then somebody's got a little on-site tug that moves it around, which looks a lot like a tracked trailer, but it doesn't have the on-the-road highway licensing, for example, or maybe it does because it, it goes between a plant and the building across the street. So basically what I'm saying is OSHA left it vague. If you have a scenario where it's at a loading siding where you'd expect to have fall protection, OSHA's going to enforce fall protection. If you have it somewhere down on the siding or you have it away from the building, probably not. Uh, where you have a field of trailers that are all parked next to each other for purposes of cleaning or maintenance, I wouldn't be surprised if they found some basis for determining fall protections required, at least when you get to the, the trailer that's at the last, you know, the edge. 
This is a question, a subject that we're getting a lot of interest in, and Larry, you and I have done a lot of work on in particular, uh, given the client lists uh, that, that have uh, these kinds of problems. And so those of you, for the sake of time, who have more questions, want to talk about it more, certainly we encourage you to contact either Larry or I uh, or me anytime, uh, and we'd love to chat about it. Uh, but let's, let's keep moving for the sake of time. Uh, the next subject is fall protection itself, fall protection and falling object protection. Uh, there are certain exceptions for the required use of fall protection, and they go to the use of portable ladders while an employee is performing an inspection, conducting an investigation, or conducting a pre-task assessment or assessments before or after performing work. They, fall protection requirements are suspended, and when an employee is on a powered platform or aerial lift. Uh, Fall protection, as you mentioned, Larry, in the general industry, uh, starts becoming a requirement at working surfaces above four feet, uh, in construction, six feet. And, uh, and that's when fall protection requirements kick in. Uh, what we mean by fall protection is guardrail systems or safety nets or personal fall protection systems. Uh, that, there's three big categories for that, fall arrest systems, travel restraint, and positioning systems, and there are certain work, one might immediately look at this list and, and come to a conclusion as to what would always be the best, but certain work uh, tasks as well as uh, settings would call for different uh, types of uh, fall protection uh, and, and different, they, because they're different features, they, they come to the forefront as being the preferred choice. With that said, um, the, the requirements, let me go back one slide, the requirements uh, kick in once you get to four feet or above, uh, with the exception of those uh, circumstances listed above. So let's talk about fixed ladders. Fixed ladders is uh, a complicated area. If you have fixed ladders and the fixed la anywhere in your workplace, and the fixed ladder was installed anytime before next November 19th, November 19th, 2018 of next year, then that fixed ladder must be equipped with a personal fall arrest system, a ladder safety system, a cage, or a well. If it's installed after that date, after November 18th of 2018, it can only be equipped with a personal fall arrest system or a ladder safety system. Cages and wells won't do it. By November 18th, 2036, uh, employers must install or retrofit all ladders with personal fall rest systems or ladder safety systems, even the ones that were installed before November 19th of 2018. I think that they're thinking there is the service life would be at or near its end, and when you replace it, you have to replace it as if uh, you meet the requirements of an installation after November 18th, 2018. I think there's some redundancy there, but that's okay. Uh, and then there's any time you do a partial retrofit of any kind, then that portion that you retrofit must be fitted with a ladder, cage, or well uh, to make sure you comply with the standard. Minor, just one clarification there. Um, I hate to get into the, the weeds sometimes, but the retrofit, the partial retrofit is obviously theoretically um, January 17, 2017, which doesn't make any sense because you don't really have to do anything in, uh, with respect to the installation until January 2018. So. You have to read the partial retrofit language, look at the other language about November 2018 and figure, oh, should probably meant 2018, and they'll, they'll correct that. 
Well, I think that's hardly in the weeds. I think you're 100% right, and it's a great catch. If you're doing a partial retrofit of any kind starting now, you have to comply with that last point. Unless they say they really meant 2018, which is, I think, what they meant. It doesn't make any sense to, to say a partial retrofit <laughs> based on the standard that isn't going to affect for another year and a half. When your employees are on roofs, and we don't necessarily mean for construction, there could be other reasons. Uh, as Larry gave one example, installing antennas, cleaning gutters, et cetera, uh, then, then fall protection kicks in. Uh, on low-sloping roofs, the requirement is merely that uh, if you're m less than six feet from the edge, you need a guardrail, a safety net, a travel restraint system, or a personal fall arrest. But if you're more uh, distance away from the edge, then the requirements soften up a little bit. From six to 15 feet, uh, where an employee uh, is only uh, temporarily or infrequently uh, near the edge or up there then uh, on the roof, low-sloping roof, then you may only need to have a designated area that the employee is required to stay inside of. But if you're closer, to, if it's not temporary or infrequent, if it's a regular use or during the whole shift, the employee's uh, between 6 and 15 feet, then it's the same requirement as if it was less than 6 feet. However, when an employee gets more than 15 feet away from the edge, let's suppose they're working on a chimney and from all points uh, the edge is more than 15 feet away, then the requirement is that there's no fall protection. You need to have a work rule uh, if you don't use uh, the zero to six feet measure uh, and and a designated area is uh, is sufficient to stay inside that 15 feet area. Well, Did I say that clearly enough, Larry? I think the, the problem is if, if it's an infrequent thing, you don't need fall protection. You just need a designated area. Then you need a designated area. So the ridiculous scenario is you've got a dust collector up in the middle of a roof, and it's 40 feet away from the nearest edge on a flat industrial roof. In theory, this standard would still require that you use a designated area, even though there's no chance of falling. You probably wouldn't, and probably dare the compliance officer issue a citation on the basis there's no exposure, but theoretically that's possible. But the problem is on a residential roof, or for those of you who've got these buildings where some architect decided to be really creative, there is no such thing as a roof that's just 4 to 12, which basically is about 18.4 degrees for anybody who's not familiar with 4 to 12. Um, one part of the roof is 5 to 12, one part 3 to 12, one part might be flat. So then OSHA says, well, if it's 4 to 12, so then the question is, okay, so where does your 4 to 12 apply? When you go over the eave of the roof, when you get to the point where you're actually doing the work, or someplace in between. Totally unclear what that means. So you can see how, how all these problems are going to come into play. I guess you're going to get your protractor up there and try to do the, do the, the fall distance and, and see how it's going to work out. All right. With that said, let's move on. Oh, I have one question coming in from a member of the OSHA 3030 community. He's saying, Monish, why don't you call this the OSHA 4030 because you never do this in 30 minutes. <laughs> No, I made that up. Nobody really said that. Uh, let's talk about the training, uh, the compliance deadlines for training. We have to uh, complete training by May 17th of this year, uh, and that includes training on fall protection hazards, fall protection equipment, and uh, there are other uh, uh, training requirements, uh, some fall protection exemptions that uh, still require training even though you're within the exemption. Uh, so May 17th is the deadline, and I think it's important I'll tell you, a lot of times we see citations where the uh, folks at OSHA can't find an actual underlying violation, but they will cite 
for a failure to train, and that's particularly when somebody got hurt. Oftentimes, somebody might have gotten hurt through their own carelessness or breaking a rule. So the uh, folks at OSHA won't say that you didn't have the rule or you didn't have fall protection. They'll simply say, well, you failed to train people on how to use it or when to use it, et cetera. So this training deadline is pretty critical. I would encourage everyone to get going on that early. Uh, okay, so let's talk about some of our issues of concern in the last two or three minutes before we uh, let these kind folk get back to their, their working day. One of the concerns I have is that the requirements have uncertain deadlines or uh, there's a mixed set of deadlines. Uh, and grandfathering uh, is also spotty. Sometimes there's uh, grandfathering provisions and other times there aren't. And we're talking about uh, sometimes fairly extensive capital uh, changes uh, and other times just to equipment like your entire stock of ladders, etc. You might need a building permit, for example. Right. And How that, long that's going to take. Yeah, that takes time, exactly. And you might need permission from a landlord, etc. Uh, to obtain architectural plans, plans get three uh, estimates, and then to implement the work uh, is not something that can be done overnight. Uh, one of the questions we had early on in this program, which we hadn't addressed, is is there a more specific guidance or definition for fall protection or walking and working surface? Uh, I think that the definition, as you described it, Larry, is what we get. The definition of a walking and working surface uh, is something that any, anything that an employee could walk on or work on and uh, I think it's fairly all-encompassing. Or step on, right. Or step on, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, we've had so many questions come in about motor vehicles and trailers, and uh, as you can see, the last thing we, we had thought as a specific issue of concern is motor vehicles, rolling stock, loading docks, uh, trailers when they're off and on the tractor, uh, rail cars, and it's a kind of work that we've paid a lot of attention to for clients, uh, gone through the details of, and if those of you who still have questions that we haven't, been able to address today, by all means, I certainly do encourage you to reach out to either either to me or to Larry, and we'll do our best to try and try and be of some help. Uh, that's why we're in this profession. Uh, with that said, when, when we talk about what employers can do, uh, the first thing is, is training, and that has to be done by May 17th, and you should keep good records of the fact that, with regard to a particular employee, the fact that they completed the training, but I also like to see uh, training the record be, uh, demonstrates uh, or reflect how the employee demonstrated their comprehension of the training material, either through a written test or a demonstration test. Uh, and I think the demonstration tests are typically better, but in some aspects of walking and working surfaces, written tests are suitable and even preferable. Uh, but keep those records. Uh, conducting inspections of the workplace, identifying areas that need repair, sending them off to maintenance, uh, conducting a hazard assessment, uh, and conducting inspections of your fault protection systems uh, and making sure that they are uh, compliant. Those are the kinds of things that employers should be doing right now. Uh, becoming familiar with NFPA and OSHA guidance on acceptable accumulations of combustible dust, fairly complex question and very dependent upon the particularities of your workplace, uh, the particularities of the material you're dealing with, its flashpoint, its uh, combustibility, the, the particle sizes, the density, all need to be understood in order to understand your exposure to combustible dust risks. Uh, maintaining records for training inspections, as we talked about before. Uh, and and there is litigation on uh, contemplated on residential roof work, Larry? Yeah. To the date, at least, there's been a petition for review followed by the National Chimney Sweeps Guild, uh, which gets involved with a substantial amount of residential roof work. And where was that filed? Sixth Circuit? 
seven. Seventh Circuit. And uh, a, a small company had filed in the Seventh Circuit sometime back, so all the cases will be consolidated there. And then a major gutter cleaning company filed in five or six circuits where they had different operations, and they'll all be consolidated in the Seventh Circuit. And I believe, I believe all the issues involve around residential roof work. But for some of the other people who were in the factory environment, just to keep in mind that if you've got a flat roof, you still need fall protection if anybody's going to work within six feet of the edge or realistically 15 feet of the edge. And that's going to take some time to, to put that in place. With that said, many of you who are part of the OSHA 3030 community and have been for several years uh, know that not only being free to you, we provide very quick, helpful information about things that you might not have had time to keep up with. Uh, so the OSHA 3030 now has a baby sister. Her name is the Tosca 3030. For those of you involved uh, with chemicals and chemical exposure, the Tosca 3030 is uh, the same concept. Uh, typically one Wednesday prior to the OSHA 3030. The next one will be at 1 o'clock Eastern time uh, on February 8th. And for more information, you can go to khlaw slash TSCA 3030. Check that out. Some great Tosca attorneys here at Keller and Heckman along with Cardinal Camrisk, work on that program. Uh, the, the OSHA 3030, the lifeblood of that, is, is the word of mouth. So when you get the invitation, please forward it on to folks inside your company and at other organizations, uh, particularly folks who are in the Office of General Counsel or responsible for safety and health, industrial hygienists, safety engineers, etc. Uh, the next one will be at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, February 22nd. And more information, as you know, at Law slash OSHA3030. Don't forget to link in on Twitter as well as to, uh, to our LinkedIn page. Larry Halperin, thank you very much for joining us. Couldn't have done it without you. Uh, and to all of you who have signed into the OSHA3030, thank you very much. Thank you to your organizations. Uh, until we see you again next month, stay safe and take care.